bravissima. Hello, Victoria. Good day to you. I'm really excited about this episode because I think we've got a packed load of stuff to get through. It's chock-a-block with crime. It certainly is. And of course, we've got to give our usual disclaimer. This is an adult podcast. There'll be stuff that um, the squeamish might find a little bit. (laughs) And, you know, we're going to have a bit of a laugh about it as well. So if you don't like black humour, if you don't like dark humour, then maybe this isn't the podcast for you. (laughs) I'm delighted how you put that. I'm actually feeling really psyched. I don't know why. I feel like I've got lots of energy. Oh, that's really annoying. (laughs) I knew you'd hate that. And again, I'm just laughing, thinking of the expression on your face. (laughs) You've got to get a whole load of mug shots like Andy Warhol's. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'd love that. I know exactly when I... I think that the yeah. most annoyed look on your face is, and it's when certain people are mentioned who I'm not going to mention. <laughs> was it Was it glamorous news lady telling me <laughs> yes, to get I out of her it, seat? I think it might have oh, been. Oh, and FYI, that. I've been yes. contacted by a glamorous news lady, and this actually isn't exclusive because I've not told this to you, Ben, because um, I can't get a hold of you because you're busy being a teenager these I days. I can hardly wait for the exclusive. Go on. <laughs> so said glamorous news lady who knows who she is because you're listening right now. She had a similar experience to me, a la... How do I tell you who she is without <laughs> well, be, letting the cat be, out of the bag? No, the I one at right. TV Centre, do you remember? I know that who I she said, is, yeah, I yeah. know, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had it all, so anyone who's anyone in news these days has had a standoff with her. <laughs> anyone who's anyone has had to fight over a, a somewhat uncomfortable chair in TV Centre. And be replaced by someone, someone who is somebody's <laughs> handbag. Well, I've been replaced now anyway, quite easily and quickly. I know, you've been replaced by four youngsters. <laughs> We've got a lot to talk about today, so I'm going to just trail ahead. Do you want to and say who you t- are first? Oh, God, I do. Yes, of course. Every I'm time. I'm <laughs> I forget how we have to do that. Um, I'm a former BBC News correspondent, a former crime reporter. I'm now a podcaster. I do other bits and bobs. And my name is Ben Ando. In fact, I've been helping a policeman write a book and it's coming out in a couple of months' time. But we'll probably talk about that in the Who said you were allowed to plug anything that you were doing? <laughs> Don't talk to me about plugs. Um, now <laughs> I'm then. Victoria Mitzi. I know you want to override me because you didn't even let me start. <laughs> M-I-double-Z-I, like pizza. I'm a broadcast journalist and I live in Devonshire and I'm a true crime enthusiast, podcaster extraordinaire, former everything, jack of all trades, master of none. M to the I to the Z to the Z to the I. Is that what you're supposed to say if you're down with the kids? And the monster mitts. (laughs) <laughs> right. Uh, so, we, we got, so we've got a really um, cool interview coming up with uh, Colin Sutton, who's a former detective chief inspector from the Met Police, and he famously caught Levi Belfield, who was the man who um, murdered um, Amelie Delagrange and Marsha MacDonald, and was later also convicted of kidnapping and murdering Millie Dowler. We couldn't have got an interview with a bigger person for what he did He was responsible for catching not only murderers, but really in charge of huge teams of people and access to all these resources. He's pretty amazing. He's the biggest of police cheeses, the largest of fromages. Yeah, well done, Ben, for actually stepping up and pulling your finger out. Hey, thank you. 
I, I you know, I mean, I, I, do I resent the suggestion that I don't pull my finger out, that normally my finger is thoroughly pushed in? No, I don't resent that. But you thank you anyway. And swallow we're also that pill. But what we're also going to be talking about, of course, is Johnny Depp and the latest in the uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Turd. Oh, sorry, Amber Heard case Uh which is coming up too Uh, and we've got to tell people how they can get in touch with us and that is your cue victoria you didn't let me finish podcast at gmail.com and we're on twitter at ydlmf podcast and you can at us if you want to um we're always getting atted by other podcasts which is very nice so we're always grateful to other podcasts yeah so what's been piquing your interest recently victoria Oh my goodness, well there's really only one thing to talk about here. Mm-hmm. He is monstrous and his name is Philip Blackwell. Oh yes, yes, the, the, the two counties rapist. We're oh, but be we, hang on, him. we're going to talk about him later. Yes, yeah, we're yes, going to talk yes. about him later, yeah, yeah. Oh, when you were saying all that stuff about atting us, everyone's atted us tremendously and I've been really rubbish recently. I've tried to thank as many people as possible. But uh, I've I've mentioned because um, I get messages from all sorts of directions, so send them to my email so I can find them all in one place. That's you didn't let me finish podcast at gmail dot com. So yeah, I've got to say, rate, review, and subscribe. That's really important because otherwise, listen, everyone's listening to us, but you've got to do that to keep us going. Otherwise, we just have to get a sponsor, and you'll have to listen to Big Red Building on Golders Green Road. Keep us going, right. Okay, so should I read, should should I say, thank you for all the Twitter follows, because I'm sure you have if you're coming back to listen to us. Thank you for all the listens. I find countries in the world that I'd never even heard of listening to us, so how you find us, I've no idea, but thank you. Yeah, all the people who've been supportive to us, the pod review, thanks for your brilliant review, we're really chuffed. Fat, drunk and stupid, eTurnerBabe, that's your Twitter handle, Reverie, Lady Justice podcast, as usual, friend of the show malice you're brilliant ian bit dead bigfoot for breakfast where'd you get your names and david ben you didn't see that one i've got to tell you about that in a minute and big bear as usual thank you very much for actually thank you very much david oh no hang on at glendor is his twitter handle he compared us to vegetables just as we asked, oh, them, just as we yes, threw he out did. For people to do. Did you see yes, it? Yes, I did, and I'm actually. I've got to say thank you because I'm uh, utterly thrilled by uh, being compared with a celeriac because I love celeriac. I think do it's you? The, I think it's the unsung hero. That's of the really interesting world. because I think it's, people it's should licorice, look at our yeah, Twitter handle yeah. to see just how much you do resemble a celeriac. I do. I do. It's true. And hang um, on, Twitter handle at ydlmf podcast. Yes. Go I, and have a look I, at Ben. It's cr- it's just insane. But like fennel, celeriac has that kind of licoricey hint that I just oh love it. Mm, yum yum yumster. Yeah, gumster. I like both. Yeah, but weird that you don't like butternut squash and things like that because they're sort butternut of squash, people who yeah. like one tend to like the other. Yeah, but it doesn't hold that you have to like one if you like the other. Ma, I just was it a bit strange. I don't play by society's vegetable rules. Okay. I go my own way when it comes to veg. Oh, no. The James Dean of true crime podcasts. <laughs> the James Dean of vegetables. And sort of slightly older cuisine. and slightly heavier. The James Dean of vegetable cuisine. Um... <laughs> Okay, so we're going to talk about um, 
we're, well, we're going to have our interview with Detective uh, Chief Inspector, or former Detective Chief Inspector Colin Sutton in a minute, in which my favourite bit of it, by the way, is when he um, reminded me, because I was there and I'd, I kind of, you know, slipped away, the moment when Levi Belfield realised, he blurted something out and realised he was done for, and that was it. So... So Johnny Depp. So I mean, obviously, you know, this this is this is a libel case. So this is not a trial. It's not a criminal trial. It's um, two people who have got a disagreement in front of a judge, and the the two parties. And this are Johnny Depp, who is suing the Sun news uh, newspaper or news group newspapers, the company that owns the Sun, because they said in an article uh, printed in two thousand and eighteen, they alleged that he was a wife beater or described him as a wife beater, and so we've heard lots of Johnny Depp, and he um, in fact. Nick, Wallace joined us and explained how Johnny Depp was very polite in court and so on. And obviously Johnny Depp's got lots of fans out there and lots of supporters. And, and so is Nick Wallace, actually. Well, yeah. so Nick Wallace has too. Um, obviously, thanks to appearing on You Didn't Let Me Finish podcast. Really? I think he <laughs> I owes it all it. to us, don't you, Ben? I, I, I don't think he owes anything to us. I don't think he <laughs> thinks he does. Then we've been hearing from Amber Heard, and then we also heard a bit more evidence, which is quite juicy, because what you've got here is this libel case. The barrister for Johnny Depp, David Sherborne, and said that he and his team, uh, his team, re- received this anonymous video, well, a video from an anonymous source after Amber Heard's sister, Whitney Henriquez, said in court that Amber Heard had never attacked her. And this video was played to the court the next day, and I'm sure it was all hushed. And in this video, which apparently is an unused clip from a reality TV show that um, Whitney Henriquez was taking part in... Um, she is um, friends of, of of hers suggest to her that her sister had beat her and appeared to be inspecting her body for bruises, and um, so the the court the court on its fourteenth day of sitting saw this video, and this is the video shows. Um, Whitney Henriquez, uh, Amber Heard's sister, talking with friends of hers by a pool. And one friend is heard saying, did you get in a fight? And then, I can't believe Amber beat your ass. And then another woman appears to inspect Miss Henriquez's cheek and arm. And she is heard to say, I'm not going to talk about it. So what the... And she um, didn't. Well, yeah, and, and this is, um, and she didn't, but this is, um, David Sherborne said that uh, they were contacted to explain that Amber Heard had a history of violence and attacking people, and this video of her sister Whitney was taken shortly after Amber Heard had attacked her, and Miss Whitney was filmed with people commenting on the faces on her bruise and body. And this newly disclosed video material, said Mr Sherborne in court, demonstrates that Whitney Henriquez was lying and that she had tailored her evidence to meet her sister's evidence. So Whitney Henriquez was called back into court, back to the witness stand um, to answer questions about this. And she said that in it, she had been referring to a verbal argument and denied it had been physical. And she said that her friends were, and this is great, inferring and trying to make a storyline, albeit a bad one, interesting, nothing more. So basically what she's saying is that all her friends are... statements? I'm reading from what she said in court, yeah. And so basically what what the friends are all apparently doing, according to Whitney Head and Henriquez, was basically being great big drama queens who are trying to big up something that hadn't happened. Well, I think there's been a bit of that that so far, hasn't there? And but, uh, that's what the judge yeah. has to decide. I feel like saying that every time I'm sent a snarling dog gif 
by people whenever they see journalists and think you're a journalist you hate Johnny I, don't, I mean seriously there there's somebody here who's had you know however many decades of experience probably deciding on evidence surely you know fair process is something under the eyes of the world's media that has to be noted and followed totally and I think one thing I mean that we can all agree on is that if you've been reading this case and following it listening to Nick when he was tweeting every day from court and uh, reading the transcripts you can see that you know these people live a very um different life lives to no most shit. of us and they they kind of almost seem to create drama and feed off drama i mean they are actors for goodness sake so i mean yeah, I in think, some sense their whole that? life is is their whole life i mean they earn money and lots of money pretending to be other people you know a real nurse might earn something amber heard pretending to be a nurse in full makeup is going to earn probably 10 times what the nurse earns maybe more so so they they live a life that is incredibly privileged surrounded by people who are constantly telling them how wonderful they are and they just play parts and that's what they do so i think the judge is a bit going to like have his being work a cut out correspondent here. at the bbc oh that's harsh oh no yeah, i think okay. there's definitely a parallel don't you i think when you're doing lives and you're standing in front of court or in front of um something interesting that's happening then you project you're trying to get the the message across i mean they always say uh, don't they that when you're pro- broadcasting you should try and talk to your friend as if you're talking to your friends in the pub I'm not sure I agree with that I sort of think you should probably try and project as if you're <laughs> I think talking that could to be a, very amusing <laughs> I sort of think you should you, when you're when you're addressing a camera when you're talking you probably should try and talk like you're talking to a slightly deaf aunt and uh, making sure ev- that she can hear every word and knows exactly basically what you're how you to talk explain. to everyone because you're condescending oh <gasps> Oh, you are you are harsh. People quite like deaf aunt treatment, except I, they feel like you're telling them off. I, I know <laughs> That's this. the quote of the day. People like the old deaf aunt treatment. <laughs> anyway, we need to get on with um, Detective Chief Inspector. I defiantly deny that they like deaf aunt treatment. Have we got anything else to say? I, I think the trial's been fantastic for information yeah. and how not to live. Well, I mean, just a couple of cor- sort of slightly tangential things. Well, first of all, it is coming to an end soon, and the judge is going to then basically take the summer to, or the rest of the summer, to decide what his ruling is. But also, it's interesting because this has really totally taken away all the coverage of what we all thought, I think, was going to be the big trial, which was the um, the trial of the Wags and Wagatha Christie, which was Rebecca Vardy um, versus Colleen. Um, Rooney. Rooney, check yeah. you out knowing about that. Hey, hey, hey. but I think I mean you're I don't watching think too seen... much RuPaul. <laughs> RuPaul's Drag Race. Everybody loves RuPaul. Um, I <laughs> after watching my daughter sits glued to it with her girlfriend. I just have to walk in and there they are. The thing is, whatever moment you walk in and see a, an episode of RuPaul in, it's exactly the same shot. It's basically some overdressed, uh, an overmade up American sitting there with a slightly quizzical side eye going. We love on. Americans. We love you. Oh, we love Americans. Um, and I, I can't believe how many people listen to this, by the way. When you told me, it's thousands. It's amazing. Mm. Anyway, but look, look okay, I so know. that's it. For, let's, that I can't just believe about wraps anyone it up. listens to you. <laughs> that just about wraps it up for Johnny Depp and Amber <laughs> Turd. Amber Heard. I can't believe. She's going to be Amber Turd from now on forever, isn't she? I mean, how is she going to shake that off? Or even wipe that off? <laughs> I don't know. I suggest a very hot shower. <laughs> okay. <laughs> for you, Ben. You. <laughs> I can't wash Dirt it Dirt rod. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> dirt rod. I can't wash it away. So let me give you a brief introduction to Detective, your former Detective Chief Superintendent. Uh, and before Chief you Inspector bang on, Colin Sutton, yeah? I'd like to say Colin's fascinating. So do listen because he's so mildly spoken. You think, hang on, and then. You realise that the content of what he's saying is really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I, you know, I sort of met him several years ago now when we were working on these, when he was working on these cases and I was just covering them and, um, yeah, found him incredibly engaging. And we get um, to hear what, what Levi Belfield said to him for the, when they met for the first time. And someone's like, this yes. is the big cheese of the police. Wait yeah. for it. It's unbelievable. It wasn't difficult to find a title for this podcast. <laughs> and that Levi Belfield, surprisingly, doesn't send Colin Christmas cards. <laughs> So so what we're talking about here with Colin is how he went about catching Levi Belfield, who was attacking um, maybe dozens of women uh, in a period in the early part of the last decade. Joining us now is uh, former Detective Chief Inspector Colin Sutton from the Metropolitan Police. Colin, I mean, a lot of people who follow true crime will already be very, very well aware of you and your work. But um, for those who might be a little bit new to the genre or new to us, just tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and, and your background. Yeah, I, I was a, a police officer for 30 years and, and not a second more. Um, and I started off in London. I went out on a sort of a missionary work in, in West Yorkshire and Surrey for a few years and then came back into London. Uh, and I spent the last nine years or so of my service as a senior investigating officer on the Homicide Command in London, in West London primarily. It was a job I loved and I'd craved for a long time. And when I got it, I you know wasn't really prepared to let it go. And during that time, I, I sort of, you know, it was we, we were reasonably successful. I had a really good team and I was very lucky with them. And we, we sort of knocked off a good job, which was the, the, the Levi Belfield case, where we, we kind of took him off the streets and, and uh, made sure he couldn't do his killing and his abusing of mostly women uh, anymore. And then after that, I, I went over and sort of did a, a review of the, the long-running case that was known as Operation Minstead, but was known in the media probably more often as, as the Night Stalker, which was a guy that was uh, breaking into houses of, of old ladies mostly in southeast london for about 17 years and sexually assaulting and raping some of them so and we, we managed to get him as well um so that was quite a, a nice way to end up and because those cases had sort of put me in contact with the media uh, i met a few journalists and knew a few and they said uh, you know we could probably probably get to use you when you retire so when I retired I, I started doing a bit of sort of punditry and uh, for mostly for, for, for ITV news actually but all, all sorts of news outlets and a bit of writing and then I moved to East Anglia and kind of stopped doing the newsy stuff but somehow found a, found a niche of um, of doing true crime documentaries for various people and, and then was persuaded into writing a book that I didn't think was any good and nobody would want to read and and uh, that got picked up by a TV production company and they made a drama series out of it, which Martin Clunes has starred in last year and which was very successful, was surprisingly successful, really, although I think it was very good. And uh, so we're now doing another one on Delroy Grant, which um, we've just finished writing the, the scripts for. Um, and hopefully that will be uh, going into production soon if the virus lets us and uh, will be out next year. So is Martin Clunes going to play you again, Colin? He is, yeah. He's a glutton for punishment in that respect, is Martin. <laughs> it's yeah. a role he's made his own. <laughs> <laughs> and he was very good at it. And it, was, it, was, it was amazing, really, because I think he'd spent about 
I don't know, seven or eight hours with me in total beforehand. And yet all my family and friends are saying, wow, he's got you. He's really got your mannerisms. You know, he's he's really sort of studied you. I think it probably just shows, um, you know, what a, what, what a good actor he is. I, I told him that he will always be sort of Gary Strang from Men Behaving Badly, as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, <laughs> He can. He can probably. Uh, you know. He, he proved he can do. Uh, he can, He can act. And, uh, he can definitely act. And uh, and a good guy as well. I, I enjoy working with him. How strange is it watching somebody portraying you on TV like that? Yeah. It, I mean, it was at first. Yes. I mean, by the time it actually went out and everybody saw it, I'd sort of seen it. You know, a few times. And I'd kind of got used to it by then. But it was. Um, yeah. It was a bit. It was a bit odd. I mean, I, I think the the, the the hard thing to get your head around at first is the fact that nearly 10 million people decided to sit down in their living rooms and watch something that you were part of that happened to you for real you know and you sort of think oh, you know oh, is it that interesting do people really want to see this and, and i suppose i guess the answer is yes and and i think you know that there are various sort of privileges and, and honors that you feel being trusted to investigate these serious things and do the best you can for them and uh, you don't realize quite how much um how much of an honour it is and how much, you know, it's a fortunate position you're in while you're doing it. Colin, can I ask you about sort of the reason for all of this? I want to know what you found was the most rewarding and what was the toughest, you know, homicide in London. Was mm. one of the toughest and sort of most frightening job at times? Um, I wouldn't say personally that I found it frightening. I, I think by the time I got to doing that, I'd absorb the cynicism that sadly you get if you're dealing with 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 the extraordinary and the the sort of bizarre and and the the kind of off the off the normal scale um as as you tend to as a police officer anyway and and i'd you know i'd always kind of separated the fact that the life and the things that go on when i go to work are very different from most people's lives and and from my own life so um i I never found it particularly sort of frightening i i found it you know, it can be dispiriting. Um, it can be, you see the worst of human nature on a regular basis. Um, so I guess that that can be a bit sort of, you know, can, can lead you to sort of some dark thoughts sometimes. But essentially, it was doing a job and, and doing that job to the best that you could. And, and being a murder detective meant that you have access to better resources and better scientific backup and you know very nearly anything that you want but there, there can be you know there's no doubt there's, there's there's nothing more important i suppose than than finding out someone who's committed a murder we first met colin i think um during the investigation into levi belfield and um yeah and during that that trial and that that perhaps i think is one i'd really like to sort of talk to you about again mm. um i mean i think one of the things that i find fascinating and kind of almost ongoing I remember you saying this to me that one thing he liked to do was to control the situation around him and the kind of the ongoing almost drip feed we seem to have had since his conviction about him maybe confessing or maybe not confessing is almost like him trying to still do that oh I think that's absolutely right yeah I mean it's it's he doesn't like to be out of the headlines and and he he will you know he'll play games he's still playing games even from the, the relative comfort and luxury of, of HMP Franklin or wherever he is at the moment. I, I mean, he, he he knows that he is able to command the attention of the media. And so he can say what he likes, really. And it doesn't really matter because there's not much you can do to him. He's still able to toy with the victims and their families and the people that loved the people that he killed. 
and he does it because he can. There's never been the, the, the scintilla of remorse or, or, or of, uh, you know, expression of, of sorrow for those that he's hurt or what he's done. Not not since, you know, since he was arrested. He's, well, frankly, he's, he still says he didn't do any of it. My recollection is that, um, was it the white van, seeing that white van keep cropping up that was kind of yeah. one of the first things that led you to him? We, we had the white van that the people on my team that were doing the CCTV monitoring were very sort of diligent and then it would have been so easy to miss it there was so many little white vans flitting around in fact there was one parked you know two cars in front or two spaces in front of of where Belfield's van ended up parked um at the murder family Delagrange but they did a very good job with that and we had this van but we couldn't see the the number plate or, or you know anything that was really going to be distinctive and so we ended up with the possibility of having to do an inquiry to eliminate something like 25,000 vans and that was going to be hard work but I was determined that we would do it if we had to but fortunately these his cases just attracted the the most amazing response from the local community because they they really saw it as something that threatened their their, their calm and their tranquil part of London and, and part of that response was people who knew uh, you know suspects men they thought were suspects and one of those happened to be Belfield's ex-partner to whom he'd been you know completely uh, savage during their relationships he was in all his relationships in terms of domestic violence and sexual abuse and uh, she came forward and said you know I think it might be him and she told us that he had a white van that he used for wheel clamping and that struck a chord with uh, one of the inquiries we'd done about a local white Ford van and we kind of pieced it together and realised that he was he was looking very good as our suspect and uh, never looked back from that day. And uh, it's my birthday in 2004. I remember it quite distinctly. Because I remember the, uh, from the trial that there was a lot of evidence around looking out for dents and marks on that particular van, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was quite good because, uh, you know, although it was just a white van with no registration number, he'd repaired... Uh, after a fashion, some rust on the back doors by, by kind of riveting some sort of aluminium plate over, and that was pretty distinctive. The van itself had, had originally been used at Heathrow Airport airside, and so it had a plinth on the roof for the kind of orange rotating beacon that vehicles there have to have. And because Belfield, A, wasn't much of a driver, and B, wasn't much of a mechanic, he not only curbed the wheel and had to put a different wheel on the front and the side, but he'd completely broken everything when he tried to replace a bulb in the headlamp so we had this van going around for three quarters of an hour before Amelie's murdered and it's easy to pick up on all the cctv that we had because it had this lump on the roof this odd wheel the front one of the headlights was out and it had these plates on the back door so although we didn't have the registration number the circumstances were were fortunate for us you mentioned that it was on your birthday that you kind of mm. got this, I don't know, breakthrough moment. Describe yeah. what, what that was like. Where were you and what happened exactly? We were working at, out of an office in Barnes at, at that point and uh, most of my team were out. They'd gone to try and find vans and eliminate them and I sort of sent them off in pairs with, with corporate credit cards and said, you know, don't come back to you've ticked all the vans off your list. Mm. And we were going through these these sort of um, suggestions of, from members of the public and uh, that was when we came across it. I, I was absolutely clear from the moment that we identified the van that we had to pursue that van that was going to lead us to it. And I had sort of equal clarity that when we, we came back with Belfield, that looking at his history, his his intelligence file and things he'd been arrested for and things people had said about him, that he was a really, really good suspect and was very likely to be our man. It was kind of euphoric in some ways because that's huge progress, but 
it's always tempered with the thought that, you know, there's, there's a long way from a big difference between identifying the suspects and convicting him at court, you know. Of course, that was just really the start of a a very intense, intensive and detailed investigation that, that the team undertook for the, for the next sort of two and a half years. So two and a half years from having the suspect and thinking this could be our guy or this is a very strong chance this is our guy to actually getting him in front of a judge. Yeah, to, to charging him, yeah. I mean, it was the trial was... Um, was very nearly three years after that. That was November of four, and the trial started in in October two thousand and seven. And it was one of those where, because we had no forensic evidence, there was no DNA, there were no fingerprints, there was no sort of smoking gun. In that sense, it was an entirely circumstantial case that we built up with little bits of evidence from here and there and fitting it all together. Uh, we we literally were investigating it right up until the day that we went through the doors of the court to start the trial. And that was the first trial. That was um, for Amelie and Marsha and, of course, the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy. Yeah, that's right. And, and then he comes back to court, of course, because there's Millie Dowler. Yeah, well, it, it's, I mean, we, we, we'd identified or looked at Millie Dowler as a possible sort of, you know, one of his victims on that night in November 2004 because it stood out that he was living within, you know, 30, 40 yards of where Millie was last seen on the day that she disappeared. And and then once we spoke to his then partner, she she was able to confirm to us that he'd been to the flat that day. So, you know, and what car he was in, and there was a CCTV image that Surrey had of that car. So we kind of alerted Surrey to that, and, and, and they had, you know, they had their own investigation going on, and they got round to it, but in the end they were quite sort of tenacious with it and it took he wasn't charged with with millie's murder until 2010 i believe yeah 2010 so that was like eight years after she had gone missing in fact the trial wasn't until the year later 2011 and, and uh, i'd retired by that point um, but the, the slightly actually there's a, there's a slightly sort of funny well, not funny thing about that but strangely as i said i, I was kind of working for the media and there was a newspaper that wanted to to give me one of their press parties and for me to go into the to the press box in the old bailey and sort of cover that trial for them but what i did because i thought it was sensible was i rang brian altman who was the, the leading counsel who prosecuted Belfield for, for us as well as for surrey and so i knew quite well and i said look you know what do you think about this and and he was of the view that it would be a bit of a sideshow because Belfield would see me there and not want me there and he would kick up a fuss because he could and thought that would do them some good and it was really unnecessary and it was just going to cause problems so I, I politely uh, declined this kind offer to go and sit through the trial. Oh, you well, sat next to me. <laughs> yes, quite possibly. Yeah, we could have had some fun. You mentioned that um, Belfield wouldn't want you there. What, what was your relationship like? Obviously, it's not going to be great. But um... well, no. I mean, I, I don't. I don't. He doesn't send a Christmas card these days. Um, <laughs> he, he, he. It's really, really interesting because he he was just completely uh, sort of rude and disrespectful and horrid from the word go. He was introduced to me in the charge room uh, custody office at. Uh, Heathrow Police Station, as it then was, because that's where we took him. And, and one of my officers said, you know, oh, Mr. Belfield, this is Mr. Sutton. He's the boss. And he said, fuck off, prick. What? And that kind of set the set the kind of tone for our relationship um, over the next sort of, well, and to, to date, really. Um, where do you think that came from? Uh, he, he was just he was just disrespectful to everybody in authority. He did said 
whatever he liked. You know, I think what you have to understand about him is this is a man who's who's he wasn't particularly educated, but he was quite sort of street smart and quite intelligent. And he thought that he had a degree of invincibility. And he'd always managed to charm, talk or bully his way out of any scrape that he'd had in his life, really, up until that point. And I think he believed right up until, you know, he was in the witness box giving evidence um, at his own trial for us. He still believed that he was going to win. He was going to beat it. He beat us. He was he was better than us. Uh, and thankfully, he wasn't. What do you think gives someone that idea? Well, I think if you were, well, there's a phrase in cricket, isn't there, a flat track bully? I think if, if if you kind of base your life upon only interacting and only trying to achieve and only having objectives amongst those who you can overpower, who you can outthink, who you can outmuscle, then you get this sort of false sense of invincibility. Um, and Belford largely did that. You know, he, he kind of just hung around the estates and the local places and he picked up sort of waifs and strays and people that he knew he could bully and that he could intimidate and got them to, to do his bidding and to do his running around for him. And, and it, indeed, you know, paid them a pittance to, to work in his car clamping business. But it was always, he was always careful to make sure that he didn't take on people that he, he thought he couldn't control, I think. He didn't Did start you... with the charm offensive with you. No, he probably <laughs> thought I was beyond that. <laughs> was Colin, probably... you said that um, you thought he believed he would kind of beat the system and, and beat you guys mm. right up until the moment he was giving evidence. Do you think that's when the penny dropped? I think I know exactly the moment the penny dropped. The, the penny dropped. He was twisting himself into into a, a, a difficult position, of lying about um, something after the murder of Marshall McDonald and going on holiday and selling a car. And, and of course, Brian Altman is very patient and very calm, but very very forensic. And and you know you 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 can't you can't get past him. And he'd bamboozled. Belfield to such a degree that Belfield blurted out in court, I'm struggling here, I'm fighting for my life. And when he used those words, I looked first at the judge and then at the jury to see if those words had hit home. And I think it, you know, they did with, with, with both her ladyship and, and, uh, and the jurors, because the unsaid thing I was thinking was, well, that was more than you gave Marsha or Emily the chance to do, isn't it? Fight for your life. Why should we actually make allowances for you because you think you're fighting for yours? It was one of those moments where everybody in court goes, "Oh, don't mm. they?" And so there's that, that that moment yeah. of that indrawn breath, and yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, but I think he 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 you know, he's bright enough to realise it as well after he'd said it, and there was this sort of this this intake of breath and just a a pause, you know, a brief pause in in proceedings. And I think that was the moment he knew it was all going sideways. Yeah, he was very surprising actually physically. I mean, obviously he's a big guy, but. His mm. voice wasn't what I expected when he started to speak. No, it was funny. I mean, having listened to hours and hours of conversations between himself and his mother, he kind of re reversed. He had this kind of quite insignificant, squeaky, high-pitched voice, and she had the sort of gravelly, uh, the gravelly deep voice. Um, yeah, it was all a bit. It was all a bit odd, really. But uh, he didn't like people taking the Mickey out of it. There were, there were some things, some of which I won't repeat, even on your podcast. And I know you're reasonably relaxed about things like that, but there is there are limits. But uh, he he um yeah he, there were certain things he didn't like people saying to him, and taking the Mickey out of his voice was one of them. Oh, what else? He didn't like uh, jibes about his weight, um, particularly when conjoined with 
very foul language. Oh. Put it that way. Um, <laughs> He didn't like he didn't like being called a fat something or other, particularly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so a phrase that alliterates. So of course none of us ever used it. Of course. <laughs> and I mean, I, I again, I remember sort of, you know when the, the guilty verdicts came in, and not so much in the case you were involved with, but in the second trial, the Millie Dowler trial, um, he was found guilty of that, and then the jury was sent um, home for the night, yeah. and what was quite sad was that there was a case linked to that Rachel and, yeah 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 Rachel Cowles I think yeah and, um, that's right the jury hadn't returned a verdict on that but because all the papers splurged with the whole Millie story the mm. judge ruled that they wouldn't be able to give a fair verdict on the, the Rachel Cowles case I, I suppose um as an I know you were retired by then but as a, as a sort of a police officer would can you sympathize with the officers involved in that they would have found that frustrating I, I can sympathise, empathise and empathise with them because it happened exactly the same in the first trial. There was still um, an abduction and another assault uh, outstanding that the Jew hadn't decided upon and exactly the same thing happened. The, the, the judge yes. didn't let them go ahead with that because of the quote from, from Defence Counsel, welter of overnight adverse publicity. That was, was um, yes, Anna Maria Rennie and Irma Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, yeah. and the funny thing about it was, is we've got these sort of circumstantial cases where we've, 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 we've built these painstaking circumstantial cases together and we get a majority verdict on Kate and a majority verdict on Marsha's murder, uh, a unanimous verdict on Amelie Delagrange's murder. They're all the ones that were kind of interdependent and there was the, you know, the, the, there was the circumstantial evidence. Anna Maria Rennie picked him out on an ID parade and said, this is the man who abducted me. And the Irma Dragoshi case, there was a friend in the car with him who said, I saw Levi stop, get out, batter her, get back in the car and say, why did you do that? Well, I did it because I could. And the jury couldn't agree on that. So it was kind of weird in some ways that the two cases that had the direct evidence, they found it hard to agree on. And these, these, these sort of subtle nuances and innuendo and interdependent cases, they can mix. I mean, it didn't ultimately matter. One of the great things that we did was that we knew that there were a large group of, of, of people, group of women who had been attacked by this man and whose case we would never take before the court because we could never find the evidence for it. It was too late. What I did do was I deployed my family liaison officers to those women and said, look, what you need to understand is this is not going to happen for you because we can't do it. Nevertheless, the important thing here is that this guy goes away and he can't hurt anybody else. And in a sense, your justice is her justice, is your justice, is her justice. And we kind of built this network of support for them. So much so that we had people whose cases never had a chance of coming before the court turning up to see him be sentenced on the day after he was convicted. How many of those victims were there, Colin? I mean, how many do you think he attacked all up, if you if you were able to guess? Belfield? Uh, dozens, I think. Probably less than 100, more than 20. I mean, yeah, we, we'll, we'll never know. When we had the, the TV programme last year, I had seven or eight people come forward and say, yeah, you know, this, this guy attacked me. I know it was him that attacked me, and I never thought people would be interested back then or, you know, I didn't want the embarrassment of saying I'd been raped, as in one case, or I, I was raped by this man and reported it to police and then withdrew it because I, I didn't like the shame and having the police cars around at my house and my neighbours seeing and, um, you know, and in 2001, that's what happened. You know, the police just said, oh, OK, sign there, we won't investigate it then. 
Yeah. Uh, wouldn't happen now, thankfully. Uh, but but so you know, it's just it's it's open ended. But he he was he was he was prolific, and that that's one of the greatest things really about what we achieved. It wasn't just the fact that we got justice for our victims, and he's paid for for what he did. It's the certainty that he would have carried on offending and carried on offending, abusing, assaulting, probably killing too. Um, and you know, there were just more further dozens of victims, potential victims that would have been victims in the future if we hadn't have taken him out of the game. So, I mean, there's Colin is a, a fascinating guy, and that wasn't all we spoke about, was DCI it? DCI Colin Sutton. Well, quite. Um, but that wasn't all we spoke about with Colin, and there's going to be more to come, isn't there? Yeah, um, Delroy Grant, uh, Night Stalker, that we covered, I don't know, eight weeks ago or something like that, um, because in all the cases that you'd covered, didn't we, all the biggies, because uh, I got the small fry stuff, um, <laughs> it's not a small fry, but not that, not that bad sometimes. This one was the most chilling and worth bringing to you in our true crime podcast. So it's, it's great to be able to revisit it with the man who caught the naughty man. Yeah. He's the man who caught the naughty men. Um, yeah, so so we spoke to Colin about that. We spoke to Colin about um, other stuff he's doing, um, which we'll put out later. And also, um, in a future episode, we will also be hearing from Colin about how exactly he went about picking up Operation Minstead, which was the police investigation into this prolific burglar and rapist who was terrorising um, South East London over a long period and with potentially hundreds of victims. So and how it was commonly that. felt that that went on for so long. It was 17 years or something along those lines, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a long, long period. And, um, because I mean, he know. was attacking elderly people. So yeah. make of that what you will. And he was, I mean, he was, he was burglaring. He was a burglar and also... Burglarising. Often he was burglarising, if that's a word. And also he was... Um, sometimes sexually assaulting and raping men and women who he encountered uh, during hands. his burglarising and then and then sat and chatted to them. I mean, he's a very strange character, but let's talk about him when we hear from Colin in a future yes. episode. and now let's go from one monster to another. Absolutely. So this is, um, this is a story you found, actually, uh, Victoria. Um, well, I think is... quite a lot of people found it. The News at 10 found it. Well... <laughs> Okay, I hadn't seen it until you showed it to me. That's because you're too busy watching Drag Race. This is the X-Factor rapist, Philip Blackwell. And if you haven't seen the video, have a look. It's really worth watching because it's so bad. But his so he he was on he he appeared on the X Factor in two thousand and eight. He toured on the live X Factor show in two thousand and nine, and and in court. one of the prosecutors said that it was quite clear that at any time during this he could have been identified by one of his victims because he had apparently been um, attacking and raping women over a 22-year period, so more than two decades. And his lust and, and, and thirst for fame was such that he decided that the risk of being identified was outweighed by his desire to go on stage. And apparently his party piece was performing Gold by Spandau Ballet and holding the last note of the song for 30 seconds, which um, I'm sure is... Is a crime in itself. <laughs> That's one of the most horrific things I can imagine. I mean, you know, why would you want to hear that? But apparently people do, or did. 
Well, and on to the crime. Okay, I've read and heard about a lot of rape cases. And as I was, we were just talking about one of the other most horrific ones. This really has got to come close to that. The terror of having your eyes taped over by this chap who has this other kind of weird fame persona. It's just beyond belief. Yeah, I mean, so he, so just a bit of background, he attacked a, a number of women in the late 1990s in the Midlands, in uh, Birmingham, Coventry, Nuneaton, Solihull, those sorts of areas. And then he emerged again in 2005. And between 2005 and 2019, he carried out um, more sex attacks on women in Cornwall uh, around Launceston. Yeah, that's um, kind of, can I just say about geographically, that's over my neck of the woods it's over in the southwest and then the other bunch of places Birmingham Coventry and Nuneaton is like round your way a bit isn't it yeah kind of I mean who'd have thunk it it's um it's he is the two the two center rapist you know and what did you say about the geographical stuff (laughs) Birmingham Cornwall hardly New York Paris London but yeah Um, (laughs) it was funnier last time (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, you were like, time. you were really like pumped up saying that before. You were like, ah, it's like, you know the way they say Paris and Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I think that's the problem. I think we should record right from the way we start talking. No, I think not. I think not. <laughs> anyway, he's anyway. 56 years old and he's been jailed for life, banged up. He's No, he hasn't been jailed for life, I don't think. Oh, yes, he has. He has been jailed for life. You're right. Uh, jailed for life. Jailed for life, but minimum of nine years. And the judge described him as a monster. He said he had no regard whatsoever for women as human beings. He treated them with a level of contempt that is too shocking to even contemplate. Okay, there's something I wanted to make a parallel with DCI, Colin Sutton. I want to identify him so you don't just think we're sort of talking about anyone. He was talking about Levi Belfield's arrogance. And I like to point this out because there's a lot of arrogance going on amongst these killers and rapists and people who commit these heinous crimes. And this guy... He clearly rates himself and how you can think that you are more important than another human being. I think that's something that motivates me in crime podcasting and certainly as a journalist. How can you treat these women? And it is women. You know, Levi Belfield did the same. You know, what was it that um, Colin Sutton said when he got back in a car and somebody witnessed him battering a woman and he said he said he I can do what the fuck I like yeah absolutely and this is I mean and, and this and Blackwell Philip Blackwell um, he would have uh, this rape kit of balaclava uh, tape for binding people up and also for covering the women's eyes as you said and he also used to take a camcorder to record his attacks and videoed himself um, raping uh, his victims that's quite and, common but, now I think but also the prosecutor said that he would sort of used delusional words while attacking. Um, He told one woman, if I met a girl like you, I would want to marry you. I want you to enjoy this, which is utterly delusional. Um, He threatened the victims. He told them that he knew where they lived so they shouldn't go to the police. And one victim was told to close her eyes and count to a 100 after he had finished attacking her so she wouldn't see him as he made his way off. yeah, it, absolutely. I mean, and I think arrogant is arrogance is very much a common theme among certainly sex offenders and possibly among killers. And I think a lot of criminals. I mean, this comes back to um, uh, Ian um, Ian Stewart, who who um, murdered the writer, who we talked about in one of our very early episodes, and he was incredibly arrogant. And I think this is 
I, th- I think this is the the kind of arrogance that leads you to commit these offences because you think you are entitled, you think you have the right, and also you think you won't get caught. You think you're smarter than everybody else out there. And that was what Colin said about Levi too, that he thought he was the smartest guy in the room. But obviously he wasn't. Well, he also came unstuck when he starts shouting in court about fighting for his own life when he's clearly killed people. Absolutely. And then that was the moment when I think it all just basically went into a tailspin for him. I think he, as Colin said, he he realised in that instant that any tiny chance he might have had of beating the rap had um, dissipated and disappeared. Now then. Now then. Uh, Okay. So we're all good. We're good. I mean, um, I don't um, want to be a Chantenay Carrot. I keep on hovering around them at Tesco's. They're a bit little and stubby. Oh, I, th- I think a Chantenay Carrots are nice. I thought I mean, they were the long, knobbly, slim no, ones. They're, no, they're the, long th- the long ones are Imperata Carrots, aren't they? I want to be one of those. And now you're a Chantenay. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, like, I like carrots, so that'll do. Oh. I like a carrot, but I don't like grated carrot in, sal- in salad. In fact, my friend Sangeeta uh, tweeted about that. She said... Sangeeta the she- tweeter? Sangeeta the tweeter, very good, was tweeting about how she didn't think grated carrot should be in salad. And I thought she's right. Grated carrot, if you're going to have grated carrot, should only ever be in cake. It's a bit 1980s in salad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, do you remember? Kind of orange. You'd go I to a fancy love- place and they put walnuts and grated carrot in it. I love a julienne carrot, and I love carrots, you know... What's that, with with sugar on it, basically? Well, yeah, it's kind of like long, thin sticks that you then kind of um, put a bit of sugar on to just caramelise them. Are they sticks or carrots? Well, you You shouldn't be eating sticks, Ben. Slices, you know, thin julienne carrot, you know, it's kind of chopped into sort of slices. Oh, so if you julienne someone, then they're mincemeat, really. Uh, Julienne you. Oh, Julian, your yeah. ass. <laughs> it was Julian, my Julian. Your skinny white ass. <laughs> your fat white hairy ass. Oh, that's horrible. Nobody wants to think about that. What what few <laughs> listeners we might still have hanging in there after half an hour of listening will have definitely deserted us with that. Well, they tuned in for gore. <laughs> is, it, is it gore? <laughs> yeah, they think they're going to get like grimy crime and stuff, and all they get is like smut and nonsense. certainly get lots of smut and nonsense and on that happy note more from the top of the police pyramid more from us more from whatever's going on and of course we will keep across the Johnny Depp thing and we might also be talking to Nick about his post office case but that's for another day you can email us on go on you didn't let me finish podcast at gmail.com keep following oh, no, rate review really subscribe and if you just haven't got round to it i do understand because i don't get round to other people who i love whose podcasts i love but um just kind of go out of your way for two seconds and it keeps us going and uh, send us an email about what you want with your favorite crimes what do you want true crime when do you want it well whenever it's published talking of which this one might be published a little bit late but if it is it is oh yeah sorry about that um maybe if ben ever stepped up it might be on time <gasps> oh that's harsh oh he he was really busy fannying around what i love is that you're not bitter about it never i think that's one <laughs> of the last words i'd be described by no one would say no no one would ever say sourpuss grumpy face mitts <gasps> you said it before i could <laughs> maybe we should call the episode that we should change the podcast name <laughs> Sourpuss grumpy face mitts <laughs> uh, I was thinking more along the lines of Ando. <gasps> oh, that's harsh. But yeah, okay, I, I could go with that. I, I think I, I think I could carry off Sapper's grumpy face. 
Yeah, you have. Done I think as when you're well. a middle age, I think, <laughs> I think you really men, have carried off the self as grumpy face. Middle-aged men sort of start be start being grumpy in their sort of like early fifties, and then never really stop until they die. Mm. So I'll see you next week. Bye.